We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for a few weeks, years, and we come this morning to Matthew chapter 28, last chapter in Matthew. Got a couple more messages to finish off Matthew, but uh, we're going to be getting into an interesting series of messages probably May 8th, starting there. Did God really say? It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, the first temptation to Adam and Eve. Ah, Did God really say as he put into their minds doubt? And it's been that same temptation down through history. We're going to be looking at, is God really real? Is Scripture relevant? Is Scripture reliable? If God is a good God, why is there so much suffering in the world today? Why is there so much suffering within the church body? All kinds of questions that we're going to be taking a look at. So we would, I would encourage you to pray for me as I begin preparing and working through some of these, but we really want to be able to see how God can speak to us and prepare our hearts for the truth of His Word. So let's uh, turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be reading the first 10 verses. Matthew chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, and there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There there you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Christmas and Easter. The two greatest days in the history of mankind. You got life and new life. Temporal life, everlasting life. Physical life leading to physical death. New life in Christ leading to eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection that we celebrate today is a foundation upon which the church is actually built. The fact that Christ died and rose again. Without the resurrection, there would be no service this morning. Without the resurrection, there would be no church. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christian faith. We read a portion earlier this morning of the first sermon ever preached after Jesus was risen from the dead from Acts chapter 2. Peter was preaching, and he preached on what? The resurrection. 
The resurrection then became the theme for all the preaching of the apostles throughout the New Testament, and for that matter, for all gospel preaching down through all the ages ever since. And they didn't, even, didn't actually only preach the event that Jesus rose, but throughout Scripture we are told what is provided by that resurrection. There's a forgiveness of sins and the new abundant life in Christ. We are promised eternal life with Him. Not only a promise, but guaranteed. But it's not only about the future. Jesus' resurrection gives us victory over sin and temptation and Satan right now. And we are given by God's Holy Spirit power to live that life. It's not just power. It's the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. That is amazing power that you and I have. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians shares his deepest desire. Do you remember what that was? I want to know Jesus. This is the great Apostle Paul. He's been preaching. He's been planting churches. And all through his life, his continual desire is, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, exclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again unto a living hope. And that hope only comes through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection is not just a theme of the New Testament. It is also the theme of the Old Testament Friday evening. If you are here or if you joined us via Facebook, we looked at Isaiah 53 and saw that the whole chapter was all about the death and resurrection and, and salvation in Jesus Christ. Everything that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of the church, the foundation of our eternal hope is the resurrection of Christ. I think it was summed up by the words of Jesus himself when he said, Because I live, you also will live. Or in John chapter 11, you remember that's, that's where uh, Mary and Martha were grieving because their, their brother Lazarus uh, had died and they had called Jesus. And just before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked this question, do you believe this? And that's a question that is before us this morning. Do you believe this? Upon that question hangs your eternity. So we come to the greatest single truth in Christianity, the, 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 the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we, we could get all doctrinal and theological about this, but this morning I, I wanted to look simply at, at the simple truth of the, that we see in the narrative. We've been doing this all the way through Matthew, um, and we look at the witnesses, the witness account of the resurrection as recorded for us in the Gospels. So we're going to view the resurrection through the eyes of the first eyewitnesses, who incidentally were a group of women, a very special group of women. Two Sundays ago, we learned about how these women had come to know and love 
the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Messiah while he was ministering all through Galilee for the past number of years. In fact, they traveled through Galilee following him and taking care of all the needs of Jesus and the disciples. Any way they could help, they were there to, to be of encouragement to them. These same women were there at, at the foot of the cross at his death. These same women were there at the tomb, at the burial of Jesus Christ helping Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they anoint his body with 75 pounds of spices and perfumes, carefully wrapping up his body and helping to see that he was placed in the tomb very very carefully in a dignified and respectful manner. We noted in verse 61 of chapter 27 that they were sitting there in the darkness as the tomb was sealed, as the, tomb, as the stone was rolled in front of the tomb. Their hearts grieved to the point of breaking, and they became eyewitnesses to the death and burial of Jesus. They saw it. And then those very same women were there in the morning of the dawn of resurrection. And that's significant because then... They are also the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew begins in verse 1 by recording this. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So Matthew introduces us to two of the women who were there. But there were others that were there as well. Mark adds that Salome was there. You remember Salome was the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. Luke adds that a woman by the name of Johanna was there, the wife of one of Herod's uh, servants. John also mentions Mary Magdalene, uh, but uses the pronoun we, indicating that there was a group. And there were others. So there was a group of women. Why? Why these women? Why did God choose women to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? Well, as as I was reading and studying, I found that some some said, well, you know, because God likes to choose those who are not really prominent, those who are usually behind the scenes, especially in that culture, those perhaps who are unexpected. God likes to surprise us and perhaps even startle us with His sovereign choices. After all, Scripture tells us that He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the foolish things of the world to shame the, the, the wise. Now, don't misunderstand me. Okay, don't, don't go, go off on a tangent here. I'm not calling women foolish or weak. The point is that God often uses the unexpected to accomplish His purposes because then His glory will shine. Others have suggested that, well, you know, God, God rewards the faithful. After all, the disciples had forsaken him, and they they had fled in fear. Where were they at the foot of the cross? Where were they at the burial? The women were there, and God rewards faithfulness. And some have suggested that in the beginning, death, death came to the whole human race in a garden through a woman, namely Eve. Why shouldn't life that redeems the race be presented first to women in another garden? Or perhaps it could be said that the deepest sorrow deserves the deepest, the greatest joy. Or the supreme, the greatest joy. And the women had the deepest sorrow. After all, whatever sorrow the disciples had seemed to have been overpowered by their cowardice. Whatever cowardice or fear the women may have had was overpowered by their sorrow. 
And some might suggest that supreme love deserves supreme blessing. No matter how much the disciples may have loved Jesus, their fear held them back. But the women, no matter how much they may have feared, their love for Jesus was far greater because they were there. Now, all of those things may very well be true, and I'm not saying none of them are. But do you know why those women were the eyewitnesses of the resurrection? (laughs) Because they were the first to show up. How profound is that? It is actually very profound if you think about it. It's amazing how you will find yourself in the center of God's will and God's purposes if you show up. (laughs) If you show up. If you're just around where he's working and speaking and moving, the women were there. Matthew tells us it was after the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week. Mark adds it was very early at the rising of the sun. Luke, Luke says it was at early dawn. And John says while it was still, still dark. So it's just that, that point in the morning where darkness was just starting to uh, turn into light. That's the hour of the greatest event of all events, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we're going to take a look at it through the eyes and hearts of the women who were there. You know, God made women wonderfully emotional. Makes up for us. And we see that depicted here as we go through these verses. It's, time, it's true you know, that they did, they did see some amazing things uh, at, at that moment, but beyond what they saw is how they reacted to it. And the real story of the resurrection here is to see the emotional transformation that takes place in the heart of these women. The first attitude or emotion that we see is sympathy. It's very simply, it very simply says in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and of course the rest of the women, went to look at the tomb. They, they went to see. There was no thought of the resurrection in their minds. They didn't come to see the resurrection. They didn't come to pray for the resurrection. They didn't come hoping that maybe, just, just maybe, Jesus rose. The resurrection wasn't even on their minds. You know why they came? Mark tells us in chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. That's why they went. You remember in John 11 that Lazarus, having been dead for four days, they assumed that his body, what, was already stinking. And here we are in the morning of the third day, decay normally already beginning, and the women having a hard time handling that emotionally came for one last effort to put spices, strong spices on the body, the fragrance of which would hopefully kind of overpower the stench of decaying flesh. It was an act of sympathy, act of kindness, an expression of compassion. They had no idea that Jesus was already alive. But they were going to have a problem because there had been a stone they had seen. There had been a stone rolled there in front of that tomb. And Mark 16, 13 tells us that, that while they were on their way, they asked, they were talking to each other, who will roll the stone away for us? 
It was huge. There was no way that they could have done it on their own. The Roman soldiers certainly weren't going to help them break in and break that seal and move it. In fact, I don't think the women even knew the soldiers were there or that a seal had been put on that tomb because that had been done the next morning after the burial. So there they were on their way, spices in hand, ready to demonstrate their sympathy and their compassion to this one whom they loved. And there's going to be a barrier in the way. But you know, that knowledge didn't stop them. They went anyway. Folks, far too often, believers start short of accomplishing great things for God because they allow what they believe to be insurmountable barriers to stop them. It's easy to talk ourselves out of doing something for the Lord because, ah, it's probably going to be impossible. Might as well not even try. These women went anyway. And, and, and then we, we find a second very strong emotion that replaces sympathy, and that was fear, actually terror. Starting in verse 2, there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And in verse 5, the angel says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Their sympathy and their tender compassion immediately turned to terror. The Greek word used for fear here is a strong word, phobeo which means to be struck with fear, to be seized with alarm uh, of, of those who, uh, who have been startled by strange uh, sights or occurrences. It was a moment of terror for them. And Matthew is the only one that gives us this particular detail in verse 2, that a severe earthquake took place. It was a mega seismos in Greek. It wasn't just a little tremor, a little bit of a shaking. This cannot be explained as anything other than an act of God. And this isn't our insurance reasons for things that happen in the world. This was an act of God. And, and guess where the epicenter had to be? <laughs> right there at the tomb. Can you imagine? So you say, so, so what caused the, uh, the, the earthquake? No, not what. Who? Who? A severe earthquake took place because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone back and sat on it. It wasn't some earth plate shifting underground. It was an angel landing. I, I picture a superhero landing coming down. I believe it was an angel of the Lord descending from heaven who hit that tomb. And a radiating earthquake sent shock waves out rumbling through the earth. Right under the feet of the women who were approaching that very place. Now it doesn't specifically say, and the, and the description here in Matthew could be read in two different ways, but I lean strongly towards the thought that the women felt, heard, and saw all that took place right under the feet. And I believe that's why they were seized with fear and terror. And here's what's interesting. Scripture tells us very clearly that the angel rolled the stone from the front of the grave and sat on it. Nothing says that Jesus walked out. Nowhere in Scripture. 
Not a word. You know why? (laughs) He was already gone. You see, the angel didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. Did you ever think about that? He rolled the stone away to let the women in and to let the rest of the world peek in and see that it was empty. Jesus didn't need the stone removed to get out any more than he needed to have a door open in the upper room later on when he went and, and arrived in the middle of a room, the upper room with his disciples. In fact, Scripture tells us that the grave clothes which were wrapped around his body when he was buried were lying in the same place where they would have been if his body had been in there, including the wrap around his head. He went right through the grave clothes, through the tomb, as he rose from the dead. No, when the angel rolled the stone away, he had already risen. That's why the angel said, he's not here. He is not here. He's not in the tomb. He's not around. He's gone. His resurrection had already happened. So the women came, and when they saw what took place and felt what took place, it filled their hearts with terror. Now, there's an interesting little piece of drama that happens here that Matthew doesn't uh, record, but we, uh, we find that elsewhere, and it's about Mary Magdalene, a very devoted follower. We've, we've talked about her before, a very devoted follower of Jesus because Jesus had delivered her from seven demonic spirits and freed her and given her a victory like she'd never had victory before. And John in chapter 20 tells us Mary's reaction, Mary Magdalene's reaction to her fear and terror. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been rolled from the distance, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. She bolted. I don't even know if she hung around long enough to hear the angel say, Don't be afraid. John just says she saw the stone removed, and she ran all the way to wherever Peter and John uh, were, were staying. It could have been all the way back in Bethany. It would have been two miles from where the tomb was. It's a long run. And in her fear, I don't know if she even saw the angel sitting on the stone because she jumped to the conclusion, she jumped to the conclusion that they, whoever they are, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Folks, there's a mini lesson here for us. Fear does horrible things to our minds and to our perceptions. Over and over again, Scripture tells us to not be afraid. Do not fear. Fret not. Do not be afraid. God knows that we don't think clearly or correctly when we are captured by fear. Again, and I've mentioned this the last couple of weeks where Paul writes to Timothy and says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of what? Sound mind. Sound mind. When we buy into fear, the sound mind (laughs) disappears. And we no longer think clearly because we have stepped away from trusting God. Mary, in her fear, assumed some grave robbers had come in the night and stolen the body. And she ran and told the disciples. You see, if she had waited long enough to see the angel and to hear the angel, that's what she would have told the disciples. But she didn't. The back of the tomb, the rest of the women... 
the rest of the women were still there, still, still by the tomb, and they got the rest of the story. Matthew in verse 3 describes the angel by saying his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Why? Because it was re- the reflection of the glory of God. The brilliance and purity and power and glory of God is being reflected by the angel. And he goes on to say in verse 4 that the guards, more than one, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. They fainted because of the fear and terror that they experienced. They were absolutely overcome by the divine presence represented there by the angel. Do you know what's interesting? The angel ignored them. The angel gave them no mind whatsoever. His attention was focused on those who loved Jesus. They were the, uh, the, to, they were the ones to whom he spoke. They were the ones to whom he gave comfort and calmed their fears. That's another mini lesson for us. If we are walking with the Lord, he is always there to encourage us and to calm our fears. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Literally, stop fearing. Stop it. (laughs) They were petrified, and rightfully so. They were in the presence of a supernatural being, for goodness sake. On full display, a blazing, shining angel from the throne of God. That's again, similar to the fear of Isaiah, who said, woe is me, when he saw the Lord Almighty in the temple. And the angel saw, when the angel saw that, he said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. See, the ladies should have known better, right? The disciples should have known better. But there was no condemnation coming from the angel, none. Perhaps a mild rebuke, but not in anger. It was more of a reminder. He's not here. He's risen. Past tense. Already done. Just as he said. Remember? Remember? And he said, come, see the place where he lay. Come on in. Take a look for yourself. And Luke picks it up in chapter 24 and says, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So I believe angel number one went in and was joined by another angel. So now you've got two angels. And John in chapter 20 says one of them sat at the head and one sat at the feet on the slab where Jesus had been lying. And Luke goes on to say, in their fright, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. It was not only a physical terror or fear, it was a holy fear in the presence of the divine. They knew they were sinners and they were in the presence of the divine. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man, and he quotes Jesus, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then, Scripture says, they remembered his words. Oh, yeah, that's what Jesus said. It wasn't until the angel reminded them that they remembered. It was in that deep moment of holy awestruck 
fear that the angel gave them his message. He got their attention. He got their full attention. We so often are so distracted, aren't we? By anything and everything around us. That it's easy not to hear God's voice. It's easy not to hear God's message. Our minds are so busy and preoccupied by everyday stuff and worries and concerns and plans and, and all kinds of things. And in 1 Kings 19, remember God sent to Elijah a tornado? Then he sent this big earthquake and then he sent some kind of a huge fire. But it wasn't until Elijah really was focused on God that he heard a gentle whisper. And God spoke. And Elijah listened. The psalmist had to be reminded in Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. Those women bowed down and were quiet before the angels. He got their attention by reminding them of what Jesus had said about rising on the third day. Then he said in verse 7, Come, see the place where he lay. Walk in. Take a look around. You are the first eyewitnesses to this reality. You saw him being buried. You saw the stone rolled in front of the tomb and sealed. And now come and see where he was laid. Then he said, go quickly to tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There, there you will see them. That was his message. That was the message of the angel. That was what he was sent to do to deliver that message. He is risen from the dead. Then the angel basically says, goodbye. Now I have told you. That was his leave-taking. Message delivered. His mission completed. And now it was up to the women to to deliver the news. What an incredible event. The evidence of its truthfulness is beyond question. Grave clothes lying exactly as they were. Women who had never expected a, a, a resurrection don't fabricate one. Disciples who never expected a resurrection don't fabricate one. Hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses in the next few days saw the risen Christ. And least of all, would they all go out and die as martyrs for one whose resurrection they had faked? And how can you explain the transformed lives? The, the difference between the, the disciples before uh, Jesus died and their lives after the resurrection is remarkable. How can you explain the church? How can you explain thousands of years of history of transformed lives by the living risen Christ? You know, there are a lot of people in the world today who say, yeah, I believe there's a God. There might even be a moment of awe if they stop and contemplate that long enough. But you know, that's not enough. There's another emotion or another attitude that we see here that, that come over the women that shows a transformed life and a new and exciting perspective on life. And that is great joy. Great joy. We find in verse 8, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. See, fear starts to give way to joy as they head towards the disciples. The reality of what had taken place begins to sink in. They weren't just happy. They were filled with joy as they ran to the disciples. 
to tell them that they, they were to go to Galilee and Jesus was going to meet them all right there. Because as we'll see, Jesus has a message of his own to deliver. The angel's message to the women was to go tell the disciples that Jesus rose. Jesus' message to the disciples will be, go tell the world. Go and make disciples of all nations. Preach the good news. So as the women went to tell the disciples, their attitude was joy. Why? Because it was dawning on them that Jesus really was alive. And if Jesus is really alive, that changes everything. That means that there's a future. That there's, there's more to life. It's not over. It's not all darkness and gloom and despair. Folks, without Jesus, there is no hope. People don't want to think about death because they're unsure of what's on the other side. They like to say, ah, nothing's there. You die, you die. It's the end. Buried. Worms eat you. But it doesn't. It doesn't. The other side of death without Jesus is only a horrible, horrible place called hell. John MacArthur wrote the following on a Facebook post. Quote, the Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy one time said, when I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. I came to the tomb of Jesus, <laughs> and it was empty. And I said, there is, there is one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, you shall live also. So the answer is yes. Jesus died and rose again. He made a path through the, through the grave over to the other side. There is a future. There is a wonderful future. There is a hope. And that's what the women that day were experiencing, the hope and joy that Jesus was alive and there's one more attitude that comes into play here, and we find that in verse 9. This is really kind of cool. I, I, I love this. They're, they're hurrying along the path, running to the uh, disciples to tell them the message that the angels had given them, that Jesus is alive, and they're supposed to meet him in, in Galilee, right? <clears throat> verse 9, suddenly Jesus met them. Can you imagine? There he is in his resurrected glory. And he says, morning, ladies. The word for greetings means to rejoice, be glad, to rejoice exceedingly. Folks, it's only in Jesus that we can truly do that. Only. Even when going through difficulties and hardships and, and some horrible experiences, we can still be full of joy. Can you imagine the joy that filled them at that moment? It was him. It was really him. And they, they knew it. They came to him. They clasped his feet and worshipped him. 
They worship. That's the next attitude, the last attitude that we're going to be looking at here. They, they move from sympathy to fear to joy to worship. Actually, there's one more coming. <laughs> Again, these women were the first eyewitnesses, not only to his resurrection, but they were the first to see him and touch him after his resurrection. This was no hallucination. This was a person alive and well. They clasped his feet. They not only saw, but they touched. It was real. He was real. He was so real that they fell at his feet and they worshipped him. What, 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 what does that mean? What's the significance of that? They acknowledged him as Lord and God and Christ the Messiah. They bowed their knee to him and worshipped. They recognized his deity. They recognized his glory. They recognized his lordship. We all have to come to that point in our lives if we want to be filled with that joy and with that meaning in life. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Amazing promise. But we have to come to that point of declaring that Jesus is Lord of our life. Without that, we've got nothing. It's not good enough just to believe there's a God. Scripture tells us that the demonic spirits believe that, and they tremble. Without the risen Jesus, we have no hope. That's exactly the last attitude that's expressed in verse 10. Hope. Hope. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Hope. We're going to see him again. We're all going to go to Galilee, the disciples, and we're all going to be together. That's what the women heard Jesus say and knew that's what the disciples were going to be looking forward to. Folks, we have that same hope, but a greater hope. And that is that we will meet him again when he returns to take us to heaven to be with him forever. That's the best guarantee that we'll ever have. Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, when you believed, when you believe, that's the point of decision. That's the moment you meet Jesus. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. But it only comes by meeting the risen Jesus, trusting Him, giving our life to Him, and letting Him be the Lord of our life. We come back to that statement of Jesus that we read in the very beginning of the message when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And it's upon that question that hangs your eternity. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living. 
whatever men may say. How do I know? How do we know this? Because he lives within my heart. Does he live in yours? Does he live in yours? Got to come to that point, that decision, to receive that joy, to receive that hope, to receive the everlasting life. Father, this morning, we thank you. Thank you for the resurrected Jesus. Thank you for the new life that you have given to us. It's so simple. It's so simple. We don't have to try to be good, and we don't have to try to do this and that and the other and try to to make all things right in our lives first and start acting better and, and stop doing this and the other thing that might be displeasing to you. All you want us to do is come to you and say, Father, forgive me. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead. And Father, your word says we will be saved. Super simple, but profound. Changes our lives, transforms our life. Father, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the death. Thank you for taking all our sins upon, upon yourself through Jesus. And then clearing them out washing them away with the blood of Jesus. And the resurrection gives us that new life. Because he lives. In Jesus' name, amen.